1: Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. And we're live. All right. Blessed greetings and love, Roger Steffens. Welcome to Bob Radio. How are you doing?
2: I'm doing fine. It's so nice to be here with you, my old friend. We've never done one of these before.
1: We have never done this before. We've talked about it a few times. We, yeah. finally, we finally got it. We're in here. And we're getting it done. All right. So if you guys don't know who Roger Steffens is, Roger Steffens is uh, probably the premier um, historian of Bob Marley's life and career. And he's written many books. He's toured the world uh, doing Bob Marley presentations and stuff like that, but, um, which is amazing stuff. And I, I love all your work and everything. And um, let's get into what's really hot right now, um, this brand new book you just released. We can get into the history of, of Roger Stephens a little la- later, but let's get into this brand new book, the oral history of Bob Marley. Um, tell us about the book. How long did it take you to write it? Um, what, what's going on? In the, I mean, I, I looked at the book. I saw all the different chapters and Madison Square Garden and everything done or something. Um, tell us about the book.
2: Well, the the book is the result of some thirty-eight years of interviewing which began in 1979 with a long interview with Peter Tosh. And uh, a couple of weeks later, uh, being on the road for two weeks with Bob Marley uh, as he did his final tour of California, the Survival Tour, in November of 1979. And my partner, Hank Holmes, and I had just started a reggae show on KCRW up here in in Los Angeles. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, we were on the air for about six weeks, Carlos, when Island Records, Bob's label, called us and said, Would you mind going on the road for two weeks with Bob Marley? <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's amazing. That's amazing. Oh, I
2: know. I know. I you and know. Hank both <laughs> went? <clears throat> yes, yes. Well, I, I did a lot more things than Hank did because Hank wasn't a fan of Bob's.
1: Okay, wow.
2: <laughs> but uh, he could have done all those things if he wanted to, but we, we had some extraordinary experiences over those couple of weeks. And wow. Got, I got to know him pretty well, and uh, the band, of course. I had met Bob the year before in Santa Cruz, but it was just a, a brief visit backstage. There, there wasn't mm-hmm. much. To, to talk about he was pretty uh, much in the in in the red as we say
0: uh-huh
2: uh uh-huh, uh-huh. so so the uh the interviews the, the the book itself called so much things to say the oral history of bob marley um the interviews were with uh, over a hundred people but 75 of them made it into the book including bob Mm -hmm. And um, it uh, involved 15 years of writing. I signed the contract with W.W. Norton in New York in 2002. And my original concept for the book was that I had these, I guess about 110 or 112 different people who were involved in Bob's life who spoke with me at great length. Mm
0: -hmm. And I
2: wanted to have that as the raw material for historians. And I wanted to just publish all of the interviews uh, intact, as I did them originally. Okay. And when I, uh, about three years into the project, um, I had a massive computer crash, and it took everything. Oh, my God. All my notes, all the transcripts, and you know how agonizing it is to do transcripts, especially with people speaking Patois.
1: Yeah, (laughs) yeah, it's rough, it's rough.
2: So I was pretty... uh, Disabled for a couple of years after that, and oh, man. Norton came looking for the book, and I had to tell them what happened. And they said, "Well, okay, you know, get back to work, and and we'll we'll wait on it."
0: Mm-hmm. So
2: by 2011, um, I had what I thought was a, a pretty good collection of, of very interesting interviews. Right. And I sent it off to them, and they uh, wrote back that the editors had gone over the material, and they wanted me to completely restructure the book to do it as the the normal oral history is. And for your listeners who don't really know the concept of oral history, it is multiple voices talking about particular subjects from their own specific point of view, and they are often quite contradictory. And um, so I said, all right, I'll, I'll go with that. So I had to Restructure everything, and that took several more years. Okay. And then my editor died.
1: Oh, my God.
2: Uh, and, uh, well, you know, the law of unintended consequences is often at work. Mm-hmm. And in this case, uh, my new editor was a young man named Tom Mayer who had a ska band in New York City. Oh, wow. And actually was on WKCR.
1: All right, back in business. We're recording again. Okay. Um, So I think some of my favorite
2: reviews came from uh, the Jamaican-Ghanaian poet, Kwame Dawes, who wrote Bob Marley's lyrical genius book, and he said that my book was a triumph of the storytelling virtuosity of the Jamaican people. So he really got it. What I wanted to do, I'm so tired of... You know, like Timothy White's made-up nonsense and white people telling the story. I wanted black people who who lived and breathed with him from the time he was three years old up in Nine Mile to tell their story in their own words. Right. And, and that's what the, the book finally did. And uh, the review in Rolling Stone was headlined, This Might Be the Best Bob Marley Book Ever. And there are over 700 books about Bob Marley in multiple languages.
1: That is so crazy, so crazy, so cool. Yeah, so, uh, it was
2: number one on the Amazon reggae uh, book charts for many months. And when, so when, did, when, 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 when did it was released? August of 2017, and the paperback came out last year.
1: Awesome, awesome, awesome. And it's
2: got uh, French, Dutch, Spanish editions, and there will be a Portuguese edition for Brazil. Wow. And uh, Chinese and what? Hebrew. Mm-hmm. I don't know how they're going to translate <laughs> Patois into Chinese and Hebrew. Wow, <laughs> yeah.
1: that is so amazing! So <laughs> amazing. So thirty-eight years you've been, yeah, compiling information, and and it all started with. Well, a the
2: research actually started in, uh, in 1973 uh, when my reggae interest was keened by an article in Rolling Stone that I never tire of quoting a wonderful gonzo journalist from Australia named Michael Thomas Mm -hmm. wrote an article in Rolling Stone called The Wild Side of Paradise that later became a book called Babylon on a Thin Wire great writing he said reggae music crawls into your bloodstream like some vampire amoeba (laughs) from the psychic rapids of upper Niger consciousness
1: wow (laughs) He's pretty much nailed it.
2: changed <laughs> my life.
1: <laughs> wow, wow. And you, you've been, you were even doing um, early public radio early on, right, as as a youth, right, in, in your days?
2: Well, I started on the radio in 1961 at WVOX in a suburb of New York in New Rochelle, which has become a, a prominent Caribbean and reggae station back there. But I was there back in 1961. My first guest was Tunji. Michael Babatunde Olatunji, whose "Drums of Passion" album came out in the late '50s and has never been out of print, one of the very first studio albums of genuine African music.
1: Oh wow, wow! That's a, that's amazing. So 1961 is when yeah. you got into radio, and then you were doing radio, and then you read this um, you read this uh, article in Rolling Stone, and then you got into reggae. So you, in between time before that, you were into uh, African music
2: or black music? Oh, I was <laughs> deeply into African music from the late '50s forward. Miriam Makeba, I saw her in 1961. Went on to do a, uh, an interview album with her for Warner Brothers in 1986 when the Sangoma album came out. So I've I've always been fascinated by African music. Missa that everybody in the '60s seemed to have. The African Mass wow. and. Uh, So I've, uh, you know, but I'm first-generation rock and roll. I just celebrated my 78th birthday on Wednesday, and uh, I was in New York when Alan Freed came there in 1954, and listen to him every night until he got busted for payola and phony charges because mm-hmm. he was playing the black artists and not the white ones and, wow. and major major labels conspired to get him off the air and that was one of the saddest days of my life I met him several times I even told him once I wanted to be Alan Freed when I grew up <laughs> <laughs> We've done a pretty amazing job. All the major people in the in the fifties at those huge shows that Alan Freed threw at the New York Paramount. Wow, Brooklyn Fox, and uh, you know, I got to know a lot of the artists over the years through my broadcast career. But basically, I've made my living over the years uh, as an actor and a voiceover guy, and doing a one man show from '66 to '76 called poetry for people who hate poetry and it was all (laughs) living American writers, a lot of them beatniks Ferlinghetti, Corso and um, uh, did that on a school circuit from September to May Uh, I was in a different city Uh, every week and I would tour five to ten schools each week and then move on to the next city and made my... So I really relate to touring musicians, you know, I've lived that life myself, slept in the back seat of the car more than once.
1: Right, 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 right. Very cool. So I want to get back to um, this first tour that you went with, with Bob Marley. So Mm. um, they they say, hey, all right, so come on the road. We, We want you to go on the road to be on uh on the road with Bob Marley for 2 weeks. So how were how and you met him the year before but just passingly. But, yeah. so how were you received by the band because here's a because are Jamaicans they they you know they have certain suspicions against white people in,
2: in general yeah. sometimes. Well, we had the only reggae show in LA. Mhm so there was an opening because of that Okay. and then you know my partner Hank had a world-class collection of reggae music back in the 70s when I met him in 78 he had over 8,000 Jamaican records what yeah (laughs) it's a very very long story I won't go into it now (laughs) and he got them for virtually nothing oh wow it it, it was just insane And, and so um, and I'd been collecting Marley seriously right from 1973 forward. Mm-hmm. So we, you know, I brought my collection on the road with me. And uh, the very first day, uh, we drove on the bus with him from the Sunset Marquee in Hollywood to San Diego to the sports arena. Okay. And, um, and Don Taylor, the manager, told uh, the reporters on the bus we were not allowed to talk to Bob Marley. <laughs> so Bob comes down the aisle And sits right next to us One row back mm-hmm. Across the aisle One row back And I'm, you know Socially distanced from Bob Right But not allowed to say a word Wow So about halfway down the um, <clears throat> the the trip uh, I had to say something to him Because we were going by San Clemente By Nixon's place Mm-hmm and I said, hey, Bob, you see over there where all those big antennas are? That's Nixon's house. And Bob says, what year him president? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, More than a year, mm-hmm. long enough to do some serious damage. So, uh, And then I propped up the albums, the original Studio One Whalers mm-hmm. albums and mm-hmm a bunch of singles on my lap uh-huh. and Bob taps me on the shoulder and he says make I see that
0: mm, yeah. so I handed
2: him I had a bag of all his records hoping someday I'd get a chance to have him sign them right so I I hand the bag over to Bob, and he went through it for about a half an hour. But that was the very first day we were with him, and Taylor had really warned us not to interfere with Bob in any way at all. Uh And I was too frightened of being thrown off the tour if I asked him to sign his records. So for the next two weeks, I carried that bag with me everywhere when I was with Bob, hoping to find five minutes Uh what I could you know, feel like I wasn't interfering with something. But he yeah. was always being hit on. He was always being pulled in several directions. And we had become friendly, knew my name. And uh-huh. uh, I figured, well, you know, he comes every year. I'll wait till next year. I don't have to worry about it. So yeah. I, I I never got him to sign anything directly. Uh, well, actually, I did. There, there's the poster from 78. And that's now been signed by 41 people, including Bob. And that was in the Grammy Museum exhibition. That was a poster for the Greek theater show in 78. And I had been given that, waiting in line to go into the Santa Cruz show in 78. And uh, it was promoting the show three nights later in Berkeley. And Bob signed that poster and the whole band signed it that day. And then it took me another 10, 12 years to get 41 other, you know, total of 41 people. And when I loaned it to the Grammy Museum, they insured it for seventy five thousand dollars.
1: Holy smoke
2: so that's wow. probably the most valuable thing in Roger Steffen's reggae archives
1: Wow 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 well let's 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 um. so. Eventually, you're on the road for the two weeks. Eventually, the band warmed up to you guys, and Don's start. Oh yeah, pretty weeks. much
2: right away, especially Tyrone Downey and 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 Al Anderson. You know, Al Anderson and I grew up about five miles away from each other.
1: Oh wow, I did not know that. And Al
2: Anderson went to high school with Timothy White.
1: Oh,
2: <laughs> <laughs> he said he was a big nerd. Everybody hated him.
1: Oh wow, wow, that's crazy.
2: That is crazy. Yeah, so there got, got fair, New got, Jersey.
1: You guys got along swimmingly. So everything was cool.
2: And yeah, all... they loved having us because we knew so much about the music. We we weren't able to do one on ones with Bob because he was so sick at that point. He he was just you know you could see the the that furrow between his eyes, mm-hmm. uh, just that deep furrow of worry and pain. And at that point, you know, he would had the cancer for two and a half years. Mm-hmm. But we did have a big press conference in the dressing room of the San Diego sports arena, and that's Mm -hmm. where those pictures of mine that had circulated endlessly and been bootlegged all over the world, most recently on a Ukrainian clock. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, yeah. (laughs) That that profile picture of Bob smoking the joint with Uh a big smile on his face, that was the only time in the hour-long press conference that he smiled, and every camera in the place went off at once. Wow. (laughs) Wow. so, uh, you know, we, we uh, most of the press conference was me and Hank talking to to Bob about deep things. You know, Hank wanted to know all about Twelve Tribes, mm-hmm. which he didn't really approve of, and he was trying to put Bob on the spot. And Bob oh. got really animated talking to him about that. Whoa. Uh, and I was talking to him about the assassination attempt, and, uh, uh, and I asked him if uh, he knew who did it, and he says, yeah, but, you know, it's not safe to talk about it wow crazy and I think the most uh, memorable part of it because we were with him for so long in so many different situations I I put two nights together uh, for him when he was staying in what they called the bungalow which is a big two story house at the Sunset Marquee just off the strip Mm -hmm. and um, the first there were two films being made about him in LA um, that he had never seen the first one was jeff walker's uh footage of the smile jamaica concert jeff was a white american publicist for bob mm-hmm. he, he was the west coast publicist for island records okay. in 76 and he was down in jamaica when bob was shot he and his wife kim gottlieb the photographer mm-hmm. and um so he had put together a, like a 20-minute uh, compilation of footage uh, newsreels and uh, songs from the Smile Jamaica concert two nights after Bob was shot. And he gave that to Chris Blackwell in the summer of 77 uh, with the idea of making a feature film about this historic event. Mm-hmm. And Chris says, no, this is way too political. Put it in the vault and don't let anybody see it. <laughs> so that night we showed the 20-minute documentary and then the entire Smile Jamaica concert while Bob watched it for the first time. Oh my God. Absolutely fascinating. And then um, Mm -hmm. the next night, uh, Randy Torno and Jim Lewis, who had made the Heartland reggae film, were still editing it in LA. Mm -hmm. This is November 79. And that was uh, the film that incorporates footage from the One Love Peace concert. Mm -hmm. And of course, that incredible moment when Bob brings Manley and Siaga together and makes them shake hands. You that's like the him. moment that yeah. that his art director, Neville Garrick, said was like Christ on the cross between the two thieves. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. Um, afterwards, <clears throat> John Sutton Smith, a, a, fellow, a fellow reggae writer, uh, asked Bob what was going through his mind as he was standing on stage between these two men and whose names... Thousands of people have been murdered,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and Bob says, "Well, I'm not no politician, but if I'm not a politician, only one thing for me to do: kill them both."
0: <laughs> wow! Yeah,
2: yeah. Wow, yeah, that was man. really heavy. Yeah.
1: So it was. A, it was a very. So he didn't come back again to the West Coast because I was no,
2: listening. and uh, the the final show was a benefit for Sugar Ray Robinson's foundation. And that was at the Roxy. This is after he played Royce Hall. And um, we, we went to the sound check for that. And Hank and I and a couple of other people, we were virtually alone with him in the Roxy. And the first hour of the sound check, Bob played all the instruments himself. And he kept singing something over and over and over again I'd never heard before about mm-hmm. redemption.
1: Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, Crazy. Amazing stuff. Amazing stuff, Roger. So, um, now you've taken Bob Marley's story in presentations across the world, yeah? Yeah. I, in
2: 1984, they had the National Video Festival at the American Film Institute. And a friend of mine named Bob Wisdom, an African-American uh, scholar and filmmaker and actor, um invited me to come and do two presentations, one about Bob Marley and the other about my video collection of uh, mainly African music. Mm -hmm. And he wanted to um, have something in this festival that represented the unofficial... Uh, historians, the the collectors, the people who keep things nobody else kept, Mm -hmm. because, you know, 20, 30 years down the line they become absolutely crucial. So, you know, other people might call them bootlegs, I just call them (laughs) unofficial versions. Mm -hmm. And I did um, a a show on the life of Bob Marley, and uh, the next night I did a series of uh, African uh, videos that I'd collected Mm -hmm. and I got reviews in The Hollywood Reporter and Daily Variety and I started getting requests from colleges asking me to come and do my show. I didn't realize I had a show so I began (laughs) to assemble the most interesting Marley footage that had never been released and uh, told his life story in between the clips and Uh, I've done that at the Smithsonian, at the Library of Congress, uh, nine times. I was the first frequent. I've done nine shows there and did it up at the EMP, the Experience Music Project in Seattle. I've done it at the Newcastle Opera House in England, uh, performing arts centers in Sydney and Perth and Melbourne and the bottom of the Grand Canyon for the Havasupai Indian. Whoa! And, you know, all over, all over the world.
1: All over, all the four corners. You've taken. Yeah.
2: And then, yeah. Absolutely.
1: And 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 the thing about Bob's music is that it covered all four corners of the world. Like his influence. Oh, has, yeah. Is is. Can t- tell us about some of the things that you've seen that um, that you've told me about, like in China and stuff, like images of Bob Marley and stuff.
2: Oh, well, the, the imagery is absolutely everywhere. You know, I've got a Mexican T-shirt where he looks like a brown campesino working out in the, wor- uh, <laughs> the, the, the fields. And um, I have a, a, a hand-painted beaded curtain from Saigon uh, uh, on which Bob has a yellow face and Chinese eyes and long Mandarin fingernails. Whoa! People love to interpret him in the, in their own way. It's, it's really exciting to me to see that. And when I, I did the show in uh, Auckland, New Zealand, and a lot of Maori people came. I always said Maori, but it's Maori. It's like Marley without the L. Okay. The Maori people gave him the title Redeemer when he came to play for them mm-hmm. and we did it in the outback in Australia up around Darwin and uh, a lot of uh, Aboriginal people, indigenous people came and you know, they have a radio station at Uluru, the big rock in the middle of the country and uh, their radio station, it seems like every third or fourth song is a Bob Marley song he's he's their major hero
1: Wow. Uh, He's a big hero all all over the world for for so many
2: people. All over the world. I think one of my favorite stories in the book came from Dr. Gail McGarity, who is a scholar and uh, a friend of some of the absolute most important uh, radical black figures of the 1960s and 70s. And she went down to Nicaragua during the Civil War, and she found that both the Sandinistas and the Contras Road to Battle playing Bob Marley's music the, <laughs> as they fought each other. <laughs> yeah.
1: that, that is crazy. That's crazy.
2: Yeah.
1: I've heard stories where um, somebody got captured and they were wearing a Bob Marley t-shirt and they let him go or something like that.
2: Wouldn't surprise me.
1: <laughs> yeah, in Africa or somewhere. Yeah, amazing stuff. And so... You did the 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 life of Marley, the video clips. Like I, I went to a few of those; they were great. You would like introduce a clip. This is like from Australia, and this is the song, and this is what happened, and then you give a background of, um, of the and settings to and look stuff.
2: For you know, little subtle things that you might miss if you're not looking closely, and uh, you know, and the show constantly evolves. It's never the same show twice because, right to this day, I'm learning new things all the time.
1: Hmm. Hmm. Amazing stuff, and. So, um, when was the last time you did one?
2: I did one on Bob's seventy fifth birthday at the Hollywood Public Library. Oh,
1: that was this that, year. That
2: was um, you know February sixth this year. Wow, amazing! And that's actually up. It's up on YouTube. If you put um, "Life of Bob Marley," Hollywood Library, you'll find it up there.
1: <laughs> okay, okay. I'll I'll include that in the in the on the blog when I write it, so people can, can check that out. Yeah. Um, so aside from uh, being like a, almost the official historian of Bob Marley, you also have been a curator of reggae music in general, right? And and you yeah. you've you've you had a big exhibition on the Queen Mary. Can you tell our viewers that didn't uh, get to know about that and and the book and everything?
2: <laughs> well, back in 2001, from January to September, I had an eight-month-long exhibition of my archives. I took 6,000 things out of the house and framed them. We filled two buildings on the dock of the ship, and um, that, that was a pretty amazing event. Uh, uh, the stuff was too big to bring back to the house because it's all in huge frames now. Mm-hmm. So the, the most precious things in my collection I haven't had access to for the past 19 years. They're in a storage space in uh, uh, in Pasadena at the design firm that Whoa. mounted the exhibition. You know, all the autographed uh, records and, um, you know, show posters. And,
1: well, I've seen your collection, 7-inch, uh, 12-inch, like crazy stuff. I mean, like well,
2: it fills seven rooms of our house in Echo Park, and... um uh, it's destined to become a museum in Montego Bay. I'm working on that, uh, finalizing that deal right now. Nothing I can talk about publicly yet, but
0: mm-hmm.
2: it, it's a, on a solid base this time. I've been trying to get it to Jamaica for 20 years, but my bottom lines have never changed. It has to be kept intact forever, Right. and it has to be made available to the public while respecting all the artist rights. Mm-hmm. And... Um, you know, the Jamaican government's tried to buy it on several occasions, so of the Marley's, but I think the Marley's only wanted the Bob stuff, and I'm not going to strip out the heart of the archive. Right. And um, so it's uh, it's something for the ages. I, well, I, well, we I can't, wait to
0: see that. I can't wait to see I, that.
2: Yeah, you know, the collection started when I read the article in Rolling Stone, and I put it in a manila envelope, and that was the birth of... Roger Steffens Reggae Archives, and now, it, as I say, it fills seven rooms, floor to ceiling, and uh, it's going to make an incredible museum. It's going to really celebrate the genius of the roots rock reggae era.
1: Amazing stuff, Roger. Amazing stuff. And so, so any any other books or any other like Bob Marley projects or reggae projects that you have up your
2: sleeve? Well, you know, I've done seven books about Bob. I've worked with a lot of photographers, great photographers like Bruce and Lee Jaffe, and uh, Kim Gottlieb. I've done three books with with the three of them. Mm -hmm. And then uh, Leroy Pearson, a wonderful blues genius who uh, turned his attention in 1980 to reggae and built one of the most impressive Mm -hmm. reggae singles collections in the world. Uh, He and I... He and I worked for about oh maybe almost 20 years on the definitive discography, um, and it is to this day the only true discography ever done for a Jamaican artist, um, and it's been and Peter's entire recording history, uh, but with all the things necessary to teach a college course mm-hmm. on a musician. It it has. Wow. Uh, everybody who's on the each record, what they played, who the engineer was, where the studio Ridiculous. was, the so tracks on How the master. Cool that? Tape. Even, even the matrix number in the wax of the singles, so you can tell what take was pressed. Wow. And um, that, that's a one of a kind book, and that's a major piece of research that will be used by Marley scholars from now to the end of time. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to have. The biographical equivalent of that uh, and that that became the oral history book, so much things to say, so you know i I have a couple of pieces that I hope will will last forever
1: uh, well his, his music is and then there's to the, his
2: then there's the family acid you know, which is a whole different part of my life, you know the I had 40,000 slides sitting in the closet downstairs going back to my arrival in Saigon when I got drafted <laughs> and arrived in Saigon in November six sixty seven 67 and bought a camera because I realized I was in the middle of history. Uh-huh. And I had all these slides in the closet. And in 2013, our son, Devin Marley, Spent a year digitizing all of them, and then Katie, our daughter, said, "Why don't I start an Instagram?" And I had no idea what that was. I'm so uh-huh. techno-igno. Uh-huh. And um, she started an Instagram and called it the Family Acid. And uh-huh. I said, "Why'd you call it that?" And she said, "Well, when I was growing up, all my friends told me our family was like the Waltons on acid." <laughs> I love it so she puts a picture up almost every day with a story about each picture Uh and we've got 54,000 followers and three books so far and I'm working with Katie now on the fourth which will be my Vietnam memoir it'll be the Family Acid Vietnam but the Family Acid California came out last year and that's a, a great big book that weighs three pounds and it's got Uh, 300 pictures that I I took in California going back to 1968. And uh, I think people... uh, There's a lot of San Diego in there and La Jolla.
1: Oh, how nice, how nice, how nice. And um, there was another really cool book that you wrote, um, uh, The Reggae Scrapbook.
2: Oh, the one I did with Peter Simon, the late, lamented Peter Simon, the photographer. Yeah, that, that book was a lot of fun because it had inserts that you could pull out, posters and you know, little records and postcards. And,
1: and did, didn't that did record win some awards? As like a co- coffee table award Oh,
2: yeah. It? Yeah, we, we won a couple of design awards. And uh, it's nice that people in the mainstream paid attention to something reggae. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, no, it's a great yeah, book. I, a, love, I love it. I love all the details in that book. It's very, very cool. Yeah, yeah, man, yeah, man. So, writing and your photography just keeps on going.
2: Oh yeah, I mean, I, I I've shot almost two thousand pictures in the past uh, two days because uh, uh, Silver Lake Reservoir, just over the hill from where we live, mm-hmm. um, has this extraordinary project that began just a week ago Uh, there's a 2.2 mile chain link fence around Silver Lake Mm -hmm. and last weekend um, uh, hundreds of people uh, took fabric and kind of braided it into ropes Mm -hmm. and wove the ropes through the chain link to Mm -hmm. spell out the names of hundreds of black people who have been murdered by the police oh my god uh, they've even got Rayshard up there already and uh, so I've been documenting that Uh, I've still got a big patch of it to do but um, I went all around the lake shooting every single name and most of them have laminated pages hung next to the names with a picture of the person Mm -hmm. and a short biography that explains how they were murdered. So it's just such an impressive piece, and I'm blown away by it. So I'm still documenting my life meticulously, and I've I've shot 544,000 digitals.
0: Oh, my goodness.
2: Forty thousand slides and sixty thousand prints. So we're coming up on about three quarters of a million frames. Wow! But I'm old. I'm seventy-eight.
1: You just you just turned happy.
2: Just turned.
1: Hey, yep. so um, I interviewed uh, Rasta Stevie uh, out Oh, for, uh, my old
2: friend. Yeah, and uh, um.
1: I asked, him about, I asked him to tell me about one of his favorite shows that he'd ever seen, or one of the favorite shows he's ever been involved in, and he—I'll
2: he tell you what it was.
1: Yeah, it was Bunny, <laughs> Bunny Whaler in <and> Aspen,
2: <laughs> exactly, ten thousand feet up under a double rainbow.
1: Yeah, right. And and, and he said that that um, he had to do like three or four intros to get. Uh, Bunny I brought to come him out.
2: on three times before he came on.
1: Right, and then he was like in the spirit and uh, he was
2: so moved by it and you know he, he looked at the rainbow backstage and he looked pointed to the top and he says that's Bob and the one underneath he says that's Peter and he was so emotional wow that he, he couldn't go on stage he couldn't you know get himself together enough to go out and I kept introducing him and he never t- turned up right then band, the band just kept on playing something else it, you know, it was a little embarrassing, but it was also very typically Bunny.
1: And he said, it "said that um, Ross St- Stevie said that um, that Bunny had uh, like been channeling Bob Marley that day, and um, that was an amazing performance. And he was speechless after the show. He said that both you guys were speechless after the show.
2: Oh, absolutely! Yeah, and that was." Like nothing I'd ever seen before. And then I did a show uh, two days later at the college in Durango. Uh, that's where Stevie was living. And um, an old band came backstage afterwards because I had described Aspen to the students and said, you know, that this rainbow was like nothing I'd ever experienced before. And this old guy came backstage. He says, I've lived. In Aspen, my entire life, and there's rainbows all the time. He says, "But I have never seen one with the intensity of that rainbow that night in my entire life."
1: Whoa! Yeah. I've gotten goosebumps several times through <laughs> this interview. I'm just
2: talking yeah.
1: to you. <laughs> <laughs> it's been it's been it's 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 great talking to you. Finding about this history and and all the things that you've you've done and contributed to the reggae world, and um, you know. We we love all your work, and you know, I just want people to get to know who you were, and then make them know about this new book, uh, the oral history of Bob Marley, where this your latest book, and uh, with rave reviews from uh, you know critically acclaimed and stuff reviewers and stuff. So, love the works, and uh, it's, thanks for taking time to talk to us over here on Bob Radio.
2: Oh, uh, and thank you for the decades that you have. Livicated your life to spreading the message, you know. Yeah, your club shows, your radio shows—it's—it's it's been a remarkable journey that we've shared, you and I, and we've been in a lot of places together. In Cleveland, and uh, make a two years we were ago, at Thumb, thumbfest <laughs> a couple of years ago. Yeah, run into you in the middle of the field there.
1: I know, and you—you you with your camera, just hanging out. like, hey, <laughs> like, Roger, I didn't know you were going to be here. Like, we're like. You can meet me in Jamaica but you can't come to my house in LA. What's wrong
2: with you? <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> You finally got here in finally, Valley was finally, in town, thank yeah, God. Yeah, 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 yeah. Have you interviewed Panky on your show? Uh
1: I haven't. I haven't. Oh you
2: gotta do Panky. Yeah, we'll get we we'll get him, we'll get him. So our our, our station
1: our, our 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 station here in San Diego is a station dedicated made made around Bob Marley's music. Bob mm. Radio. You know, it's it's twenty four hours of reggae music and we play Bob Marley like three or four times an hour. Uh, and, you know, it's just amazing that, um, you know, from Trenchtown that all these things have happened across the world and, and how far reggae music has pushed. and Yeah. And and I yeah. think that right now reggae music is so crucial because the lyrics that we've been, the Rasta man has been talking about are coming, have been coming to light for a long time, but it's, it's blaring now. I mean, it's like, it's, it's a it's like
2: i I, I, remember what judy moat said to me many years ago uh, a lot of prophecies that bob made have yet to fulfill and we're not even aware of them yet yeah totally man he was a prophet he was a psychic you'll see that in my book He, he could meet somebody and within five minutes tell them intimate details of their private life oh really Yeah, he was psychic, you know, and he he predicted his own death at 36 when he was 24 years old. And um, I've talked to both the young men in in Delaware, uh, whom he told that in 1969, Mm -hmm. and his mother confirmed that they came to her then and uh, told her what he had just said. And so I've got three witnesses to the fact that Bob prophesied his own death at 36.
1: Amazing, amazing, amazing um amazing stuff before i let you go uh roger um i've been uh during this time i've taken a lot of time to listen to some of my older music and um I reappreciated my love for dub music and um sound system culture and and and, mm. and that stuff um what what does dub mean to you
2: and uh <laughs> i'll tell you exactly when i first went to jamaica with my wife mary in 1976 We were driven from Lucy on the North Coast to um, Ocho Rios. And during the ride, uh, this uh, Jamaican expat doctor had come home to see his relatives, and he gave us a ride. Mm -hmm. And in the car, he was playing nothing but dub. And, you know, I'm... I'm a, I'm a word man, and yeah. I like I like the vocals, I like the harmonies, and mm-hmm. I, I said I I'm, I'm not sure I get this. Why Why do you listen to this? And he tapped the middle of his forehead, and he says, "Psychological music." mm-hmm yeah man it is it It takes you to a whole different realm and it took me a a few more years to get it and Hank Holmes was a huge fan of Dub and I learned so much from him and uh, yeah Dub is a whole different space and look at all the offshoots it's led to it all goes back to King Tubby and Scratch and even Coxon in those days, when they began doing it. So, so,
1: you 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 know a lot about this, and and I and I've been watching a lot of documentaries and uh, uh, BBC films about sound system and the history of Jamaican culture and sound system culture and all, all these things.
2: You now, probably uh, read Michael Veal's book, right? I have. i I'm,
1: I'm. I've got a couple of books here. I got um, this book, uh, The Science Scientists of Sound: Fortune of UK Reggae Dub Sound. And bass, smids, and toffs, and oral history of sound system culture, and um, I'm going, th- I'm going through these books and um, stuff. But here's the question I have: Just watch the the Lee Scratch Perry one, um, the Upsetter, and um, it's like who who was who, who's really first, Tubby or Scratch, or who was there
2: really? You might say Er, er Errol Brown. Errol Brown. Errol Brown told me he made the first dub music and showed King Tubby how to do it. Okay. All right. So it's like who invented the term reggae? We'll never know.
1: Okay. Okay. <laughs> right, right. But, but you're saying you're saying er, Errol Brown.
2: Errol, Errol Brown was that. certainly there at the start. Okay. And he, you know, he was doing it and in who, front who, of King Tubby. Who,
1: who was he recording?
2: Oh, I got to go through my notes. My, I did a long interview with him that was in the box set of uh, the Augustus Pablo Rockers uh, album when they did the box set a couple of years ago. And
1: oh, I, I, uh, I have that. It's a CD collection or vinyl?
2: No, it's it's a big box set of uh, discs of okay. 12 inches
0: oh and, wow uh,
2: he gave me a, a 3 hour interview he gave me the whole history of Dub and his relationship to it so oh, that's well worth seeking out
1: that's what I want to hear I want to hear that
2: <laughs> in fact I, I, I must have a transcript of that and uh, I will send it to you
1: oh that would be amazing that would be yeah, amazing that would
2: be really important for your research
1: that is really cool that's really cool and then so um now um you know, we're just having fun here and we're just talking about um, sound systems. So, when did you see your first sound system? When did you go see your first box of speakers and an amplifier and an operator?
2: 1983, and after Sunsplash, I went to Ocho Rios and Jack Ruby had his system set up. Mm-hmm. And I remember standing in front of these 12 foot speakers feeling the bass at the bottom of my spine pounding on me like a mean Swedish masseuse. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. it was like nothing I'd ever experienced before. Right. It was it was really sensational. And all the young uh, uh, DJs that he was fostering at that time mm-hmm. uh, took turns at the mic, and uh, uh, that was sensational. That was more fun than I had had at a... A reggae, you know a DJ show. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm, yeah, yeah, no, it's it's a it's a really cool part of the Jamaican culture and you know And it just really drove the oh, music
2: Yeah, it seems to be fading
1: these Right, days. it's fading. It's fading here in the United States and in Jamaica, but in Europe the dub arena uh, Part of the reggae music is massive Massive. I'd
2: face it, Europe is keeping reggae alive. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. we talked about this yesterday.
2: Yeah. Um, There's a couple of incredible magazines, Rhythm in Germany and Reggae Vibes in France, and they're jam-packed with articles about uh, European reggae bands, and uh, they review hundreds of records in each issue. Uh, they they really keep the the whole thing going. It's, it's it's another world over there, and and a lot of Jamaicans do that circuit of uh, European festivals every summer, and they're able to feed oh, yeah. their family for the next year.
1: Oh, for sure, for sure, for sure, for sure, for no, sure. Reggae festivals is is nothing really new, but what is really taking hold right now, Roger, I and mean, what I see is that the sound system culture. Is even exploding in in Europe, even more so. More younger sounds, uh, a lot of young producers making their own records. Um, they're making their own dub plates and uh, like real. Yeah, no, we plates. haven't
2: even mentioned Japan. I mean, that's that's an entire world to itself. So they bring artists over from Jamaica to make albums strictly for the Jama- the Japanese market. <clears throat> They've got sound systems all over the country. Japan is is. That's thriving reggae underground.
1: Wow, that is really cool to know. That is really cool to know.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's I, hundreds of releases each year that never leave Japan.
1: <laughs> I believe yeah. it. I believe it. You got to go down to Japan to get those. Yeah. Yeah, man. Very cool stuff. Well, I love I, I love uh, talking to you about reggae. You know, I love talking reggae music all the time, but it's really nice to talk to, about reggae music with you and uh, you know thanks for your time Roger
2: uh oh, it's been a great pleasure thank you for doing this with me and keep up the good work
1: yeah man yeah man for sure for sure cool well I